In this episode, I am speaking with Dante Disparte, who is the founder and CEO of Risk Cooperative, a strategy risk and capital management firm focused on mid-market opportunities, market expansion, and innovation on a global scale. He is the co-author of the book, Global Risk, Agility, and Decision-Making, and was recently selected as one of the 40 leaders under 40 by the Washington Business Journal, and among the top 100 most influential leaders in D.C. in the inaugural Power Meter 100 list. If you want to learn more about how some of our officials and leaders in public health and healthcare are responding to pandemic, listen to our other episodes. Now, let's ride the wave in a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks. There is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers, where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast, Dante. My pleasure. Happy to be with you. So in your recent uh, Harvard Business School Review article, uh, you made the case for a significantly funded DARPA-style program uh, to prepare for a global pandemic. Uh, to put this in perspective for our listening audience, can you describe the potential impacts of such a pandemic event to a large global organization, let's say a multinational corporation or the like? Yeah, so in that article, which you know I was happy to co-author with Governor Ridge, the uh, first Secretary of Homeland Security, part of what we were hinting at is the work that the governor and uh, Senator Lieberman were working on with the Blue Ribbon Panel, where they were leading an investigation of the general U.S. response to biodefense and pandemic risk. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding in that research is that, you know, we're, we're not aggregating our efforts and our resources against something that could genuinely be a societal threat. And so in all, the U.S. federal government has about $6 billion allocated towards pandemic preparedness and biodefense. And we find that that is you know, that's not only an insufficient figure, but it's a figure that is allocating the capital and the resources in, in a somewhat disjointed way. Mm-hmm. And what we're calling for in this article is this kind of public-private model that would borrow from the very best visions and work that you would see from an organization like DARPA, really pushing innovation and R&D to the frontier, but getting the private sector involved and frankly, uh, you know, almost crowdsourcing biodefense and pandemic preparedness standards from as wide an audience as we can, because the the risk is that significant societally. I see. And what key role or what the specific roles that private organizations, that companies could play in that type of preparedness project? Well, you see, if you think about how a lot of um, pharmaceutical research and sort of biomedical research is carried out, um, unfortunately, the economic model is now incenting innovation around, um, I I hate to say, almost cosmetic medicines and treatments and solutions when Mm -hmm. the risk of large scale pandemics or epidemics feels like you're buying a lottery ticket for a once in a lifetime event. And so it's not necessarily commercially viable to put a lot of R&D spend behind it. And so part of the idea in kind of calling for this broader public-private approach is to create an incentive system that says, you know, if the risk has to be right only once and you have to be right 100% of the time, then the economic calculus and the human toll 
that these risks could pose really warrants um, pre-investing in readiness and resilience, right? So if we have mm -hmm. to put capital to bear in a long-term R&D cycle for, for biodefense and pandemic preparedness, somehow it's worth it. And we've started to see some near misses around the world that really start to signal that, you know, the combination of, in, of intense urbanization, climate change, um, the rise of vector-borne diseases really start to lay out uh, foundations for some near misses of these types of risks that, that are hopefully a wake-up call. So I know that you do a lot of advisement in terms of risk management through your company, Risk Cooperative. How would a pandemic flu, equivalent of the 1918 Spanish flu, impact the insurance industry? Well, I mean, I think we, you know, the insurance industry would be massively exposed as a first loss layer insurers in the accident health arena would be directly exposed to the enormous loss of life that would ensue uh, a Spanish type uh, flu. And one would argue that if we had that type of outbreak today with the, the global travel and interconnections, um, the business traveler, the, you know, the tourist traveler and all of the global sort of interconnections, that the consequences uh, and the human toll would be much, much greater than we saw in 1911. Mm -hmm. And so the first loss layer would be on the, the medical system and then the insurance um, industry, the balance sheet of the insurance industry would be directly exposed to loss of life, uh, health, prevention, and all the rest. And, you know, not to say that these things are such exaggerated risks, when you look at the response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa not long ago, the first few lines of defense failed in the face of the Ebola crisis. The domestic healthcare systems in many of the countries in West Africa could not withstand the strain of the patient inflow and all the fears of contagion. Then the international organizations, such as uh, Doctors Without Borders and others, had to step in, and that too, those layers of resilience were quickly overwhelmed. And effectively, it wasn't until we militarized the response that the world began to get the upper hand um, on that outbreak. And that's just an example of the rapid de-evolution, if you will, of our response systems against these types of very, very complex risks. And the consequent tens of thousands of deaths and, and also multiples of billions of dollars, as far as I understand it, in loss. Correct. Exactly. And one of the things this hits on is another growing class of insurance that we're working on with our underwriters is this concept of the loss of attraction, that the initial acute phase of the risk may have come and gone and that the long-term consequences or the long-term exposure may not exist any longer, but the market perception is such that, you know, West Africa might be continually exposed to Ebola outbreaks of this nature and that would have a long-term impact on foreign direct investment, tourism, business travel, and others. And so there's a whole host of contingent losses arising from these intangible risks that are increasingly complex for organizations to deal with. And another quick example of that is um, fears that arose to the tourism industry in the Caribbean and Latin America as a result of Zika. You had perfectly sunny days, perfectly nice hotel rooms, and yet tourists were afraid to travel um, because they were either given direct advice from the likes of the CDC or their medical advisors or others, or their fears got the, got the best of them. And as a result, there was a whole host of contingent uh, economic costs resulting from that. So with those things in mind, what should risk managers do now to prepare for a pandemic flu event? And, and by risk managers, I'm thinking those people at, that work at significantly large uh, organizations, they could be nonprofit, governmental, you know, of, and any of those types. 
Yeah, so with these types of risks, prevention is obviously better uh, than cure, right? Because cure requires burnout. Um, and I, I you know, don't mean to use that too artfully. Uh, artistically, I, I do mean literal burnout of the affected population if, if there isn't a cure that is identified. Mm -hmm. um, so prevention in this case is much better than cure. And the types of measures that can be taken, you know, require risk managers at large organizations to really think about the people behind the P&L first, and then secondarily to think about how their supply chains might be exposed and how they could create some redundancy. The Ebola example for, you know, uh, to bring home the point about supply chains um, affected, you know, one of the largest cocoa producers. If not directly, the perception was that all of West Africa was affected, where, whereas countries like Cote d'Ivoire were not necessarily uh, ground zero for the outbreak. And so that defense of the people first and then secondarily supply chains and market access is, is kind of the secondary issue. And then how organizations will be able to spring back because, uh, you know, an outbreak of this nature will really produce uh, a paralysis in global, tra global travel, global engagement. So having redundant systems of communication, all of a sudden teleconferencing and video conferencing will become quickly in vogue. So being able to leverage all of these systems to get back to whatever normal was, there will be ways of springing back from these types of events. Well, thank you for this viewpoint of impacts to businesses, to the insurance industry. You know, your, your views on this are very helpful for our listening audience. It's been great speaking with you. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be on the show. We spoke with Dante Disparte, CEO of Risk Cooperative, about his proposed idea for a public-private initiative to fund bioterrorism and pandemic preparedness, the potential impacts of a pandemic to the insurance industry, and what risk managers can do to better prepare for a pandemic. You may find out more information at www.pinnacleperformancemanagement.com. At Riding the Wave, we like to get your feedback, and you may contact me directly at my email address, andrew at pinnacleperformancemanagement.com. Thanks for listening, and come back soon for our next podcast. You've been listening to Riding the Wave, hosted by Andrew Boyarski, president of Pinnacle Performance Management and Clinical Associate Professor in Emergency and Project Management at NYU and John Jay College. All thoughts are his own.